Love this chapter. Turn with me to John chapter 4. It's a story that you're probably very familiar with. Um, years ago in Sunday school, they'd put this up on the flannel graph, you know. Uh, you know they pop them things up on there. And remember flannel graphs? You guys that are my age and older, uh, it really was flannel, kids. It, re- it wasn't like, it really was flannel. It was like a, a board, and, and they had like a camel on there, and you'd put like another camel on there, and you put like a well on there, and you know, you'd do all the else. you put Jesus on there, and the lady on there, and you know, that's how you told the story. You get the picture? So, All right, John, four, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Let's pray once again. Jesus, we just thank you for this time in your word. Lord, even if we know this story, I pray that it would be fresh, it would be new, uh, that you would express to us some detail that would speak to us what we need to hear. You know what each person in this room and those online, you know exactly what we need from this study, from this time in your word. So Lord, uh, I pray that uh, you'd remove me from the equation that each person might hear from you and we would leave here transformed, and in fact, born again and saved, if anyone here does not know you as their Lord and Savior, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. No matter who you are, or where you're at, whether you're online, or here, or anywhere else in this world, Jesus knows every single person by name. Would we all agree with that? He knows everybody by name. That doesn't mean everyone belongs to him, but he still knows who everyone is. And because he knows everybody by name, he calls everybody personally by name. Most people think it's really cool if some celebrity knew you by name and said, hey, this is so-and-so. Well, Jesus is a little bit higher than any celebrity. And he knows every person by name, but he calls us personally to him. If, and this is a big if, he calls us personally, and he wants to do in us 
a work that is eternal, living water that would flow into us and through us for all eternity. And the big if here is if we'll hear him and if we'll yield to him. There's a lot of people here. I mean, like I said, when I first got invited to that Easter service, I heard everything, but I had to mull it over for a couple of months before I was willing to yield to it. If you're taking notes this morning, you see our title this morning, Found by Jesus and the Promise of Living Water. We have a promise of living water from a living Savior. And I don't have much in the way of introduction because we have the Lord's Supper this uh, morning, but I just want to jump right in if you're taking notes. The first thing I want to look at, I've titled uh, His Alternate Route. And it's related to Jesus leaving, Gal- uh, leaving Jerusalem in the Judea area there and heading towards Galilee. Uh, so we see here that you know, Jesus had been in the Judean area, and you know, Jerusalem is kind of dead center of Judea, uh, kind of the north center, if you will. But it, i got a map in just a second just to, you know, I like maps, and it really helps orient the, you know exactly where we're at in the tech. But um, Jesus had been there in Judea, and he had been ministering, and then they had been baptizing. As you know, John the Baptist did a lot of baptizing. Jesus' followers began to exceed John's, and Jesus is now baptizing, although he's not doing the baptizing, he's anointed the apostles to do the baptisms, they've been baptizing. But Jesus says at, this, at some point, it's time to go back to Galilee. And the long-term, uh, the long-term destination is Galilee. You can see on the map here, Jesus was in Judea, in, in the orange area there. And in that general area is where he was doing some ministry before heading back to Galilee. Now you can see Galilee is up in the square box at the top. You see an arrow uh, pointing there. That's the majority. In fact, the vast majority of Jesus' ministry took place up there near the Sea of Galilee and the cities that are around uh, the Galilee area. Now, Samaria lies in between. You've got Samaria in between Judea and Galilee, and his long-term destination is to get back to uh, Galilee. He had been in Jerusalem, if you recall, for the uh, Passover feast. It was the first Passover of his three-year ministry uh, where he did that cleansing of the temple. Remember that made everybody really happy? Remember the religious leaders? They were really happy with him when he, he cleaned out the temple. That was the first time. And then he had that nighttime encounter after that with who? Nicodemus. That's back in John chapter 3. And he proclaimed to Nicodemus there in the middle of the night while he was still in Jerusalem and Judea that you must be born again. After that, he remains in Judea, and he's now ready to head back to Galilee. But he has one stop in mind that isn't on any of the disciples' minds. They were not thinking of uh, where he was thinking. He intends to go straight through Samaria, not the outskirts, not kind of go around it, but straight through Samaria, straight, straight through that Samaritan region. In fact, John's wording is that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. In other words, it was essential, it was ordained that he go through Samaria. Jesus had a divine appointment set for Samaria. Uh, For me and my wife, June 1995, God had a divine appointment for Fort Lauderdale. That's where we were living at the time. Some of you got saved in California. Uh, Las Vegas, really do have... I see you out there, Joseph. You know, some of you at different places, and you've been saved in different places, and God had a divine appointment for you in a specific place. But this one was Samaria. 
Specifically, he was set to go to Samaria for one woman who was shunned even within, within a... She was shunned personally even, even within a culture that was somewhat shunned. Jesus needed to go through Samaria because according to the Father's will, this woman needed to meet Jesus. Now all of this is going to shock the disciples' senses um, as to what they thought was honorable to God. Remember, they want to live clean Jewish lives. Samaria doesn't fit into that. Samaria, um, just a little background if you, uh, to understand Samaria as a region in antiquity. Samaria was geographically part of, former, uh, of the former northern kingdom. You guys remember there was ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south, Judea, uh, Judah and Benjamin. Now all that took place, remember Israel used to be one country under David and under King Solomon and even before that Saul. But then after there was this political split, when Solomon died, the ten tribes to the north become the northern kingdom and the two tribes to the south become the southern kingdom. Jeroboam, he was the first king of the northern kingdom, and he set up new worship sites in Bethel and Tel Dan. Those of you who went to Israel with us a couple of times, uh, you saw the Tel Dan uh, area where they still have the altars there. You can see up in the northern part of Israel. And he built these separate places to stop people from going to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. That they, hey, you don't need the temple, we'll build our own. And that's what he did. He set up golden calves. Does that sound familiar? Set up golden calves. This goes all the way back to their time in Egypt. All 19 of the northern kingdom kings were evil. You think we've had a bad run of presidents over our lifetime? Uh, 19 out of 19 were evil. Just some of them were extra bad uh, on top of everything else. Uh, by the time of Jesus' ministry, Samaritans was what was called in that region. They didn't call it the northern kingdom now. It was, that area was called Samaria. So the Samaritans, they were a mixed ethnicity. Of Jews, uh, when, when Assyria came in and wiped, uh, basically marauded across the Middle East and they took the northern kingdom, when, when the Assyrian Empire came in, they carted away a lot of captives. But what they left behind was the lowest class Jewish people that were the poorest and considered the most uneducated, least refined, and they left them, but then they imported people from other parts of their empire. Babylon did the same thing, by the way. Rome would end up doing the same thing. They would import people from other parts of the empire, and then they intermixed together. So you had part Jewish blood, part Gentile blood. They were part Medo-Persian and other, uh, other ethnicities. But all that mixing becomes one culture in and of itself called the Samaritans. Um, by the way, those ten tribes, they're they're sometimes referred today as the lost tribes. You might hear the, the ten lost tribes of Israel, and they were carried into other nations. And that was the first dispersion uh, that God allowed on his chosen nation, preceding the one that would later come from Babylon, which would include Judah and um, all the Judean area. And so they intermarried and they mixed, and so you have this society called the Samaritans. Now their descendants, known as the Samaritans, they still claim their lineage to who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And as, as you guys know, even to this day, 
Muslims claim Abraham. And, they, and, and of course, because Ishmael uh, was born to Abraham, and so many of the people in the Arab world are related directly to Abraham, just as Jewish. So you can trace back, much of the Middle East goes back to Abraham. He, he had, then he had Keturah and a whole bunch of kids out of that. So uh, much of the Middle East comes back to Abraham. But for the Samaritans, not just Abraham, they also had Isaac and Jacob. So they were all directly, they still had the patriarch line, not just Abraham, but um, Isaac and Jacob as well. As far as the scriptures were concerned, they only accepted the Torah. What's the Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible as God's holy word for them. The rest of the uh, Old Testament was, you know, they could take parts of it, but it was not the holy book that the Torah, the first five books, were. They did not consider Jerusalem necessary for worship to God. So with their mixed bloodline, their rejection of anything other than the Torah, and the fact that they don't consider Jerusalem essential for worship, uh, this was all very offensive to pure Jewish people in that time period. Very offensive. Samaritans were considered unclean and in many respects worse than if they were considering like Romans or Greeks or Egyptians Um, because none of those would be allowed into uh, the temple area anyway. But they were viewed even worse because they were kind of half-mixed Jewish, half-Gentile. They rejected the high priest. They rejected the rabbis. So the disciples, as was common in the Jewish culture, they would have spent their lifetime, think about this, the 12 disciples, they would have spent their lifetime avoiding Samaritans. Just don't go near them. By the way, the Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people either. So it was a, it was a mutual, it's kind of like today uh, in Israel, some of the Palestinian and Israeli Jewish people that are at odds. And by the way, even today, if you, have, if you go to Israel, uh, that area is called the West Bank, you know, where, where Samaria is called the West Bank. You know, the Gaza Strip is down there uh, close to Egypt on the... Um, on the southwestern coastline there, but then the, the West Bank is uh, that area that is, it's east of Jerusalem, but it's west of the Jordan. So on the map there, all that Samaria area mostly today is the West Bank, and mostly it's under Palestinian control, well, not, not, some, not every village, but they're still, they're still at odds even to this day in that area, if, if that makes any sense to you. That area is still, matter of fact, when we were in bus tours, you, we tend to go around that area today because it's just easier with all the check. There's so many checkpoints, it takes forever to get through. So it's not an issue to get through, it just takes forever. And if you're trying to get to multiple places. So uh, even to this day, there's still something not quite right (laughs) with the kind of relationships that are in that area. But the Samaritans and the Jewish people of that time, they avoided each other. There was ethnic and religious bigotry all rolled into one. Um, but in, interesting, neither side liked each other. The Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. Samaritans liked the, didn't like the Jewish people. And neither one of them were righteous. And neither of them were on the right track. Does this sound familiar in our society? Neither of them were right. God always wants to bring, and someday when with the healing of the nations, God's going to eliminate all of that. All that will be gone. All the hatred and bigotry and 
we're better than he, we're better than you, or you're better than us, so that kind of thing, all be gone. At any rate, Jesus no doubt surprises the disciples uh, when he announces the route they're going to take. So, uh, and the disciples again, if they wanted to avoid Samaritans, and Samaritans avoid them. Uh, the Jewish people coming from Jerusalem, let's say they're going back home to Galilee after the Passover. You'd come, tip, the typical route would be go up the Jordan Valley, also called the Rift Valley. And you know, if you know, that area is all below sea level from, uh, from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea being the lowest place on earth. But you have this deep valley, so if you're coming from Jerusalem, you go around the backside of the Mount of Olives, all the way down to Jericho, and then you cut up north through the Jordan Valley up to Galilee. But that's a longer route and a more arduous route because the, the incline is so steep when you're going, Jerusalem's well 2,700 feet above sea level all the way down. Even, even the Sea of Galilee is like 600 and some feet below sea level. So you're going way down and all the way back up. So it's a harder trip and it's hotter where it's low elevation. It gets baking hot. That's why you know it's like Death Valley in, in the Dead Sea in the middle of the summer. But you go all the way up there that way. But the more direct route is just to go right through Samaritans. But they don't want to go through there because they don't like each other. People will go out of their way to do dumb things <laughs> to avoid people. Still do that today, right? I'm not going to give any examples because I will get all of us in trouble. So let's just not... But strictly devout Jews coming... They, Again, they would take that route when they could have gone straight through Samaria. Um, but Jesus, he, he's going to take that route. And his disciples, I mean, I don't even know what he tells them. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably about to walk down the wrong road. And now Jesus is going, to, hold on, where are you going? We never go that way. You know, if you have a normal route, you go uh, and you start to go, your kids are like, where are we going? Is it somewhere good? Is it, we're all going to dinner? And Jesus said, that's somewhere good for you. We're going to Samaria. They're like, is anyone going to tell him? You know, they, I don't know what they're thinking, but they're probably thinking, has he lost his mind? We don't go through Samaria. That's unclean. We're going to be tainted. God's not going to be happy with us to go through Samaria. And in fact, God's going to be really happy with them to go through Samaria. And brother and sister, God wants you to start going place where other people, why would you go there? He has a one-on-one -on -one meeting that requires this direct route through Samaria. It's going to shock the disciples where he's headed. But lest we forget, Jesus is going to seek her out, and he sought us too, didn't he? As Jesus tells us in John 15, 26, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus not only came and found me and came and found you if, you're, if you've come to know the Lord, but not just to find you, but to find you and make something of you that you'd become a fruit-bearing tree. And before that, all we bear is thistles and thorns. He turns us into something new and he seeks and finds us. If you're taking notes, the second thing we want to look at, we see his alternate route, but now we have his astonishing request. His astonishing request. Pick it up with me uh, in the text in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a drink, or for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's reminding Jesus the cultural norm. Are you, are you not aware of this? 
Of course he's aware of this. They arrive in Sychar. Sychar is a town there in Samaria that in prior times was, a, was the land of the tribe of Ephraim. You guys have heard of Ephraim? That was the, the, the tribe of Ephraim was in that part of Israel. Now Ephraim was one of Joseph's two sons. Joseph had, remember Joseph is sold by his brothers. He becomes a slave in Egypt. While he is in Egypt, he ends up getting thrown into prison. He's framed for a crime he doesn't commit. Then he becomes the vice pharaoh in a day. And then Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian princess who he has two sons, Manassas and Ephraim. And so this part of, um, this part of Israel was given by Jacob to Joseph as an inheritance. And Joseph was buried in the same area where Jesus comes to this well. He's buried right nearby there. And it was the well that Jesus comes to was originally dug by Jacob himself. And of course, Jacob is the son of Isaac, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. So the whole nation bears Jacob's name. And of course, the whole nation was supposed to be one group of people, not splintered off like they are. So, but this area is very important to Israel's uh, origins and history. This area was also the very, I don't know if you knew this, that part where Jesus is at, right here in Sychar, and which was also in the Old Testament, you'll see the word Shechem is in that same area. This was the very first part of Canaan that Abraham came to when he went from Ur to Haran and then from Haran. Finally, he comes to this same exact valley. And the Samaritans, they revered, as I already mentioned, they revered the patriarchs. They revered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they did not have a reverence for, like, the Samaritans didn't care about King David. They didn't care about Solomon. They didn't care about Elijah. They didn't care about any of the kind of men that you would, that you would think of, or Daniel, or any of the other prophets. They didn't care about any of that. They had just the patriarchs, just the first five books of the Bible. Uh, but again, this area, because it was so important in the patriarchs, uh, keep in mind, when you read the scriptures, the Old Testament, then the New Testament, uh, many of the sites in Israel have continued importance. In other words, events will happen in the same place. And eventually, Jesus, many times in the New Testament, retraces the steps. We saw this, for example, with the resurrection weekend. Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac go to Mount Moriah. Jesus then goes to Mount Moriah, right? Again, he'll come back to Mount Moriah and rule and reign in that same place. So the site is growing in importance all the time. Does that make sense? It's like this continuous until you get to the eternal fulfillment. And so this plot, when Abraham gets there, he has no idea that history will continue to happen there. And now all of a sudden, Jesus, who created Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is now standing at that same place. But he sits down by the well and waits. And he, he's tired. He's weary from the journey. It's hot. It's the sixth hour, which we know from uh, the studies, that's about 12 noon. It's the heat of the day. Now, Jesus, he was always up before everybody else praying. You guys know this, right? He's up before everybody else praying, and he's weary from the journey. He's put on human flesh. He doesn't have to get weary, but he chooses to experience what we experience, fatigue, thirst. Remember on the cross it says, I thirst. So he's tired, he's weary from the journey, and he sits down by the well and he just waits. And we know the disciples, they've gone into the uh, city already to go get food. The disciples, of course, they don't know 
why Jesus has remained at the well. They think he's just tired, but they don't know. He's come there to seek one soul. He's come to that well to seek one soul. Jesus loves souls. Aren't you glad Jesus loves souls? Can you imagine the picture? The whole universe is made by Jesus, and there's this quiet well that was dug by Jacob several hundred years earlier, and Jesus is sitting all alone by the well. This really struck me when I was studying this. I was thinking, Lord, there's so many times that I've got a million things to do on my to-do list, and I've and, and got to do this, i got to do that, and Jesus, with all the things on his to-do list, is sitting all alone by the well waiting for one person waiting for her to come. He knows he could set the watch, just like he knew when Nicodemus was going to do this. He knows when her footsteps are leaving the city, he knows when she's going to arrive at the well. He, the stage is set. It's the heat of the day, and Jesus is sitting there all alone by Jacob's well, and out comes the woman he's been waiting for from Samaria. She, she doesn't know he's waiting for her. No one knows. The disciples didn't know. It's just him alone. And then she's also alone. And for her to be alone, by the way, would, would have been unusual. The women would usually come to the wells together in the Near East and the Middle East. They would come as a group. Um, and it was usually early in the morning when it was cooler. And so you get the, all the work done early. But whether this was due to some unforeseen uh, circumstance of needing water or it was more that she was an outcast among the other women, we don't know 100% sure. But based on the context, we're pretty confident she didn't fit in. Pretty confident she did not fit in with the other ladies in town that had only been married once and were still married to the first man they married. And her life was quite checkered at this point. And we'll get to that. But there's, uh, there's some similarities and contrast he, here even with John 3 and John 4. Remember John 3 is Jesus reaches Nicodemus. John 4 is the woman at the well. And we have some similarities and contrast between the third chapter and the fourth chapter in those two encounters, both come to Jesus all alone. Of course, Nicodemus is actually seeking Jesus. In this case, Jesus is waiting for her. She does not know she's going to have a one-on-one with Jesus. Uh, Nicodemus is at midnight-ish. It's, it's dark, late night. Hers is midday. And by the way, Jesus can reach people in the daytime or the nighttime, right? He is highly respected, Nicodemus, she is lowly, if not no respect. So you kind of have a, a nick at night versus no friends at noon kind of situation. <laughs> if you're kind of contrasting the two, kind of keep that in mind if you want to use it as a witness. John 4 is no friends at noon. Uh, John 3 is nick at night. And here I've got, as a matter of fact, I've told you guys many times that John 3 and John 4 are great two books to just have two chapters always have ready. You can actually walk people through their need for a Savior. But Jesus, here's the thing, Jesus sees every soul as valuable. The respected Nicodemus, the non-respected or no-respect woman of Samaria. In fact, he considered every soul worth what? Dying for. And he asks her for a drink, and she's stunned by this. One, she's a woman. Men didn't really talk to women in that, in that context. There had to be special circumstances that you would even address them. They were, they were beneath you. But not only, you know, you had that kind of issue going on in the culture, but Jesus is Jewish and she's Samaritan. She's like, we don't even have any dealings. We don't communicate. I do, I do this when I see you and vice versa. Why are you talking to me? 
But we also see, even in Jesus uh, talking to her, we see some, some of the humility in Jesus. Uh, it's a known fact that in that time that a devout Jewish person, sometimes to their own detriment, let's say they were really thirsty, they would in some cases rather die of thirst than ask a Samaritan for a cup of water. I've seen people in my, uh, in my grandmother's age where they had grudges in the family where some person would rather starve than ask that person, can I have a bite of that? Don't, the human heart can be very, very callous. But Jesus, in his humility, he's showing her, look, I'm Jewish, and I don't care if your Samaritan hand hands me the cup. I don't consider your hand unclean. Isn't that great? He's already communicating a willingness to, no, 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 I, I don't see you the way you perceive that me being Jewish would be looking at you. But Jesus is just getting started. She has no idea that he's come to her city to meet her, and more importantly, for her to meet him. Remember at the end of the age, if Jesus doesn't know a person, he says, depart from me, I do not what? Know you. It's one thing to know who Jesus is, but you want him to know you personally, and she needs to meet him and that's why he's come there. Let's look at our final point this morning as the dialogue changes and takes uh, a bit of a right-hand turn here. Uh, this last section I want to look at, and I've actually got some sub-points in here if you're taking notes. I've titled His Amazing Revelations. So we had um, his alternate route, his astonishing request, and now we have his amazing revelations. So let's read some text we haven't read yet, but we'll pick it up with something we have read. Let's uh, pick it up with verse 13 because all this is uh, very germane to uh, where Jesus is going to take her. Verse 13, Jesus answered and said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give, will, give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, Call your husband and come here. Now, that would be normal for the man to dialogue with the, with the woman's husband. That would be normal. Go get your husband. If we're going to continue dialogue, I need to be talking to him. Uh, not appropriate, me and you having this conversation. Go get him. She answers, I have no husband. Well, that's a true statement, but it's leaving out some information. You ever had someone just leave out really important details? <laughs> and you're having a conversation, you're like, well, if you would have told me that, that changes the conversation quite a bit. But anyway, she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, you have no husband, for you have had five husbands. One, and the one you now have is not your husband. In other words, you're living in fornication. In that, you've spoken truly. The woman said to him, now she does not say, you're right, that's all true, Yes, that's exactly how my life is, was, and he, she doesn't say that. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet, which is a good guess. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place we ought to worship. Now we have a tangent. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship me on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Let me stop there for a second. If you've read that part before, you worship what you do not know. This makes a lot of sense 
when you understand that they only, she's raised believing that only the first five books of the Old Testament are God's authority. A lot is left out if you stop with the Torah. Uh, Jesus has to descend from who? King David. That's a pretty big deal. He has to be from the tribe of Jerusalem. He has to be born in Bethlehem. These kind of things aren't written until later after the Torah, all part of the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the entire Genesis through Malachi. But Jesus is saying much of the story of salvation you're not even aware of. Now, to be fair, you got a guy like Nicodemus. He's supposed to know everything, and Jesus rebuked him too. He said, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? So it's not just that she doesn't understand. Nicodemus didn't either, and he was actually a religious leader. So Jesus is, anything Jesus says is going to be, he knows this, and we know way down here, right? But he says, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you worship, they did worship the true and living God. They, they believed in one God, but they had a distorted view. He said, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews, that God was going to send salvation through the Jewish bloodline, through, the, through Abraham, but all the way through the tribe of Judah, through the uh, lineage of David. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Let's stop right there. Unbeknown to this woman, Jesus hasn't come to the, he has not come to this well all alone with the primary intention of getting something, but to give something, something of eternal value. And he begins to uh, ask a series of questions, and, and then there's these revelations that lead this woman from what looks like in her mind a routine day to a remarkable understanding of who she is. And Jesus wants us to understand who we are and then understand who he is. Because once you understand who you are outside of Christ, you really want to know who Jesus is to bring you into Christ. And Jesus, very gently but firmly, when I say gently but firmly, notice he does not at any point here condemn her. Jesus said he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He doesn't condemn her, but notice he doesn't condone either. We have no business condoning people's sin. We are not in the job of condemning them. Condemnation is at the end of the age for God, but we still can say, hey, you need to understand that is sin. Jesus said that, that you're, the man you're living right with, with right now is not your husband. She knew what that meant. He didn't have to use the word fornication. She knew what it was. That's why I, I perceive you're a prophet. I perceive you know a lot about, we'll get to that too, but he leads her gently but firmly, and that's the desire of Jesus to, to lead us to the place where our hearts are pricked and our eyes are open that we might uh, know that God the Father wants to give us the free gift of his love and the free gift of his grace. So we see Jesus' response. Uh, she, she, would have never, she would have never seen this coming, this first response. He tells her about living water. In verses 10 through 15, it's interesting. Jesus could have performed a miracle here. He could have had water come up out of the well, come across the air, and right into his mouth. Couldn't do anything. He doesn't perform a miracle. He uses his words, the same words 
that framed the universe uh, to speak to her heart. And this is good news for us because you and I can't do miracles, but it's good for us to know that, that God can, by His Spirit, help our words reach people's hearts. It's not really our words, but He just gives us His words to reach people. We need the Spirit's help. And this woman, when she hears this, she wisely is like, Lord, give me this water that I don't have to come to this well anymore. She wants this living water. She still has no idea that that living water comes by the Spirit of God, given by the Lamb of God. And by the way, this living water, it's a synonym for what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about. You must be what? Born again. Remember Jesus talked about you have to be born of water and the Spirit. So we know he's talked, this water is the Spirit. You have to be born of the Holy Spirit. Remember the dove comes down, it's a picture, uh, you know, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, but we, we receive the Holy Spirit sealed in our hearts, and so we see that it's the same story, just a little different image, born again, living water, in both cases, we're transformed. We're taken from dead, as we talked about last week, beyond repair. We talked about this on Resurrection Sunday. We go from beyond repair to fully repaired, fully hydrated, by the Spirit of God. It's breathing, just like he breathed life into Adam and Eve. He's breathing new life, second birth, living water, all the same, it's all the same context, if you will. If you are born again, you now have living water flowing in you and through you from now into eternity. It'll never stop. Even we see this living water, uh, both it'll be in us, but we all see it even in the, uh, in the heavens of the future in Revelation 7, 17, for the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them. He's going to be our shepherd forever and lead them to fountains of living waters. The waters will never stop flowing. with you. Just like you had the tree of life, uh, these are living waters that are perpetual, evergreen in our life. So he, he tells her about this living water and she is interested. So how can I get this living water? So again, he continues to lead her on a path. Now she's interested. When you tell someone the gospel, when you tell them, hey, would you like to live for all eternity and never die? Most people say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But they still haven't accepted Jesus yet. Now, now you've got to tell them, okay, let's get to the rest of the gospel. You want to live forever? You want to have no guilt? You want to have no shame? You want to never die because we're souls with bodies, not bodies with souls? Jesus goes and leads her to the next... The next uh, divine revelation here is intimate knowledge. Go and call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Because you're right. You've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. Jesus, he, he doesn't perform an outwardly visible miracle in his initial interaction with the woman. But there's a sharp turn here in this next revelation, and he says uh, here, he, what he says demonstrates his omniscience. He knows her whole life. And it stops her dead in her tracks. Like, what? Imagine, you can only imagine her thoughts. How does he know all this about me? What else does he know about me? Right? He knows all this and he's still talking to me gently. Firmly, but gently. She never says, as I said, she never says, yes, that's all true about me. She now feels what we can see as awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, I think you're a prophet. We worship on this mountain, and you guys worship on that mountain. You ever witness to somebody, and you confront, say, well, actually, the Bible says that's sin. 
well, what about the Crusades? <laughs> what? We weren't talking about the Crusades. We're talking about your life. What about Cain's wife? You know, all of a sudden there's this, this, this rabbit trail and, and uh, you know, wasn't, weren't the Nazis Christians? Or there's all these different things and that come up. But she says, I perceive your prophet. In other words, I, I know you're right. I know you understand... I know you understand things I don't understand, but let's get off the topic of my life and let's talk about the worship structures of Samaritans versus Jewish people because that I'm a little more comfortable. Right now I see this spotlight on all my sin and all the mistakes. And by the way, Jesus is aware that you know, some of the things that you know, she probably has a lot of shame of things that weren't her fault, but also at the core of everything, even though you might have things happen to you in life that aren't your fault, you still have a lot of sin that is your fault. And Jesus said, we, we have to own up to what is ours before anything else can be dealt with. That's the problem in our country today. Everybody thinks everything is someone else's fault. Always somebody else's fault. No one says, God, look at me. Like, be, remember the man beating on his breast? Be merciful to me. That's why we get on our knees and pray. We're saying, Lord, we're not looking at everybody else. First, look at me. And she, at this moment, she doesn't quite want to look at her. Let's, let's talk about the mountain, and let's talk about Jerusalem, and let's talk about the way you guys worship. And, and she's right. They had built a temple there on Mount Gerizim, which is just adjacent to that valley. And the Jews had destroyed that temple in 128 B.C. under the Hasmonean dynasty, and that was right after the Maccabean revolt. They, you know, you have a little bit later, by 128 B.C., they destroy that temple that was on Mount Gerizim, and that was really offensive to the Samaritan people, that their temple had been destroyed by the Jews. Of course, the Jews said it was the right thing to do because there's only one rightful temple, and that was in Jerusalem. And so she, she wants to have that dialogue, but Jesus isn't going to go down that path with her, even though he could have gone as deep as she wanted to, because he's there to talk about her life, her soul, her heart. It's not the mountain that Jesus wants to discuss. It's her heart and soul, and to bring her into authentic worship of God, which is personal which is transformational, which is eternal. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus is there to set her free, not help her figure out the history of the Jewish and Samaritan conflict. And by the way, Jesus is not calling you and I to fix all of America's problems. He's telling us to take the gospel to people. By the way, when you take the gospel to them, all of their ideology will change when they get saved. You don't have to worry about changing their mind about every little thing because that you'll just have this nonstop. Well, what about this? Counterpoint, point, counterpoint, counterpoint, counterpoint. To leave the room, you're still as far as part as ever. Preach Jesus, and at least they'll start to say, maybe God doesn't care about all this. Other, maybe he wants to change my heart. What Christ does for us, along with salvation, he sets us free to worship freely and authentically. He goes on to tell her what true worship looks like. Our third revelation here, the heart of worship, and it's found in verses 21 through 24. I don't have time to reread them, but we read them twice. Jesus makes clear here that worship is not a place and it's not a building. That makes sense? Worship is not, there's nothing holy about this building. And you know, we've got cracks on the outside. It's not the prettiest place you've ever seen. Uh, you know, we're thankful for it. It looks nicer on the inside. There's nothing, worship isn't a place, 
Worship's not a building. Worship's not a mountain. You can worship in those places, but those places in and of themselves, they don't constitute worship. It's, worship is the work of the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God, bringing us into communion with God personally as our Heavenly Father. He even says it here, I don't know if you, if you saw it, he said, but the Father is seeking. Jesus, that's a per- really personal word for her. The Father is seeking. He wants to bring you into relationship, into a, a family. By the way, worship cannot save us. One that's been cleansed by living water is then made to worship. Does that make sense? You're not saved by worship. You get saved to worship. Once you're saved, now you can be a worshiper of God. In Galatians 4, 6, look at this passage. Galatians 4, 6, and you, and, and I'm sorry, and because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit, and you could put daughters there for all of you ladies, sons or daughters, God sent forth his spirit into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. It is the work of the spirit in us that we now have this established father-child relationship And the Spirit comes in, and that's that born-again experience, that's that living water. And becoming a son or daughter of God, it brings forth the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. And thus worship then follows the work of the Spirit, that inward work, that living water, that cleansing. All the worship that is outside of being born anew, outside of being born again, outside of that living water, is empty or vain worship. doesn't matter if it's, well... I'm a Presbyterian. That will not help you get into heaven at all. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Calvary Chapel attender. No. Are you a true worshiper because you've been born again and now made to worship? Does that make sense? That's what, that's what God does for us. The worship that Jesus is proclaiming is that of spirit and in truth. It's not man's design. It's not Mount Gerizim's layout. It's not Jerusalem's, even though God gave the plans for, uh, for the tabernacle and temple. Again, we worship Jesus. We don't have any of that structure, do we? Why? Because he lives in us. We have this inward work. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one that establishes our worship relationship. If Jesus doesn't save us, as he told Nicodemus, as he's explaining to this woman with living water, if Jesus does not save us, we have no worship relationship with God. We are still, we are still outside the family of God, and so our worship is vain. Does that make sense? Our, but if we're saved, now our worship, even though we're still growing in our worship, even though we're not perfect in our worship, it is now cleansed by the work of the Holy Spirit. And at this point, you can almost sense her excitement. She hears all this. Father, true worship. He kind of ignores. He doesn't condemn her. He basically says, look, you need to become a true worshiper. You need to get to the place that you, your worship is pure. It is authentic. That you have this father relationship with God the Father. And she kind of pivots, a little bit excited, away from her defense away from the defense of her life, away from her uncomfortability, her culture, the religious understanding, Jesus has gently and firmly brought her 
to this place of agreement that it's almost like she's, when we get to these last two verses here, she, in my view, she's understanding that she doesn't understand, but that Jesus does understand. And then she says this, this statement, this one final statement that results in one massive revelation from Jesus. And let's look at our final sub-point of these revelations, divine revelation number four, the identity of Jesus. Now, again, I perceive you're a prophet. She's under conviction. She doesn't feel comfortable, and yet she feels excited to become a true worshiper and to know the Father. And there's part of her, when you first got saved, I remember I was both not wanting to go forward and wanting to run forward. There's a tension happening here. And you both can see and understand that all makes sense. And there's another part of you say, this does not make sense. Does that make sense? <laughs> so you have this tension that's happening, and she's experiencing this tension in her heart. Like, everything you say is true. I want that living water. I want that relationship. I want to be a true worshiper. But then there's me. How's, how my pieces are going to be put together? And how does all of this... How is anyone going to mend me back together? And do you know how we're going to fix all the past relationships and all that stuff? And she says this, I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's like, I do know there's a Messiah. I believe that there is a Messiah. You Jews and us Samaritans, we both believe there's a Messiah coming. And I believe he can answer all my questions, fix all my problems, explain the things I don't understand, and explain me, because I'm a mess. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. That's a revelation, isn't it? Can you imagine this precious woman, her mind is swimming, and, and she's got this conviction, but her eyes are open and soft, and there's this living water available to her, and she's drinking from a fire who's trying to grasp it all, and she's, I believe the Holy Spirit drops in her mouth, say this, when Messiah is coming, because the Holy Spirit sets up Jesus to just knock it out of the park, right? This is a softball right down the middle for Jesus to drive right over center field. She comes to this sudden agreement. Hey, everything is true, but I need the Messiah too. Show me all this. When Jesus says, I am he, it's like the world stands still. You imagine, to me, I see the whole picture in the slow-mo. That she's standing there, jaw on the ground, and Jesus is with love in his eyes, just looking at her like, mm -hmm. everything you've heard, I am the man. It's like a mic drop, a pin drop, and a jaw drop all at the same time. But he says it just for her and just for us now. Amen? It was just for her then but it's just for all of us now. And what will she do now? Or you're going to have to come back next Sunday. <laughs> Online, you got to... Or you can read ahead, and you can preach it to yourself, but you can read ahead. You're welcome to read ahead because we've got to stop right there. But come back next Sunday. We want to see the rest of the story, and it's a, the rest of the story is amazing. But I want to close with this, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to close with this. Um, last week I asked if any of you had ever heard, you know, when I was uh, working a couple of Harvest Crusades, 
Um, Crystal Lewis used to sing this song, and I loved it as a, as a song of invitation. But I want to read the words to you. And, and just think of the woman at the well. Come just as you are. Hear the Spirit call. Come just as you are. Come and see. Come receive. Come and live forever. Who wouldn't want to live forever? I mean, Ponce de Leon was trying to find the fountain of youth, right? Which there's no such thing. Life everlasting. Strength for today. Taste the living water and never thirst again. I remember hearing that altar call. We'd already gotten saved when we heard it. But even if I had just gotten saved, every time I'd hear it, I'd have tears running down my face because like, who would not say yes to this? Imagine the Samaritan woman. Jesus has done all this. He brings her to this place. What if she says, no thanks? I like my life the way it is. Do you realize a lot of people have done that? They get all the way to the precipice of the cross. They say, no thanks. I want to keep my sin. Actually, their sin keeps them, right? Why would anyone do that? And I just want to close this in prayer, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. But as you bow your heads, you know, maybe you're online, maybe you're here. You know, Jesus went out of his way, broke every cultural norm, which shouldn't have been in place anyway, but he was breaking them down to reach one soul that needs salvation. Maybe you're watching online and someone invited you, and you're not even sure... Maybe you hit the wrong website, but you hit the right website. <clears throat> you don't even know how you got on the YouTube channel today. You're like, wow, I was looking for something else. And maybe you're watching online, or maybe you're here. Um, and I kind of felt that way the day I got saved. I'm like, how in the world did I end up here? I closed down a bar last night. Literally, we closed down a bar. It's like 3 a.m. I was half my head hurting, but when the gospel went forward, all that faded away. And so Jesus reached this, this woman... I'll give you a sneak peek. She answers correctly, right? She makes the right decision. I made the right decision. But maybe you're here today and, and you've never given your life to Jesus. Why would you say no to eternal life? Why would you say, nah, I'd, I'd like to kind of keep all this sin and stay in this mess, stay in this earthly tent, and then when I'm done, eternity in hell. Why would anyone choose that? It's like a horrible decision to me. So with your heads bowed for just a moment, there's anyone here say, I, I want to give my life to Jesus today? Raise your hand. I just want to pray with you. If you're here this morning, say, that's me. I hear him calling me by name. Your name. If you're here and you, maybe you're online. I can't see any hands online, but say, he's calling me by name and I want to say yes. Just raise your hand if you're here. If you're online, raise your hand at home. Anyone at all. I don't want to take the Lord's Supper in case there's someone here that says, I want to jump in the boat with Jesus. I want to say yes to my well moment. Paul had a road to Damascus. She had a well. The fishermen were right by the sea. Everyone has a place where Jesus meets you one-on-one. -on -one. I'm going to pray in case there's someone online and you just, if you want to give your life to Christ, just pray with me. It's your words and your heart. That God looks at the sincerity of, if it's real repentance. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for living a sinless life. Thank you for preaching the everlasting gospel and me hearing it this morning. And Lord, I confess that I am a sinner. I have many sins. I can't even remember all the sins I have. 
But Lord, I know I've sinned against you and the greatest sin by so far saying no to your work on the cross and your resurrection. And I ask that you would cleanse me and forgive me of all of my sins, including the sin of just rejection to this point. That you'd wash me and cleanse me. That you'd write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. For I'm deciding this day to follow you, to say yes to your salvation, yes to your gift, yes to your grace, and to follow you, Jesus. Now fill me with your spirit and help me to grow in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.